Hi, Saints. Welcome to another episode of Talking Bible Truth with Dr. Kamala D. I am your host, Dr. Kamala D., here to help you grow in faith and walk in God's amazing grace. Today's episode is a two-part series entitled, Walking and Standing in God's Grace. This message is for believers that want to receive a better understanding of God's word as it relates to his grace. We are going to go deep into the meaning of grace today. So sit back, relax, take notes, and let's learn about God's grace. Walking and standing in God's grace is the lesson for today. We are going to tour the book of Ephesians. Although I may reference some other scriptures, Ephesians will be our main source of information today. Now, this epistle or letter to the Ephesians was originally written to the church at Ephesus. However, the spiritual principle is that whatever is good for the church at Ephesus is good for the church at Louisiana, Los Angeles, Atlanta, London, Iraq, China, and wherever. Because the church, meaning everyone, who accepts Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord was and is a part of the body of Christ. Consequently, the teachings that are in these New Testament books, unless otherwise specified as relating to a particular time, to a particular group of people, or to a particular location, apply to all believers down through the ages even to this present day. The four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give an account of the earthly life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. The book of Acts gives us the account of the beginning of the church age or the Holy Spirit or the age of the church. Starting from the day of Pentecost, The book of Revelation is the study of the end of the ages. All the books between the Acts and the Revelation from Rome to Jude are the letters of instructions to the family of God, either to a particular church or to the body of Christ as a whole. And so it is with the book of Ephesians. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. We are not at Ephesus. Let's, let's get that straight. Let's make that clear. <laughs> so it is obvious that this aspect of the salutation does not apply to Christians today to the faithful in Christ Jesus. This statement, however, does have reference to the body of Christ at any time or any place. If this is not true, then Paul is saying that there is a difference between the saints and the faithful. As Christians, we are, of course, also known as the saints, 
But I believe that the Apostle Paul used the word faithful in this verse because as believers down through history follow the instructions in these books of the Bible, we become the faithful in that sense. Therefore, we can determine that this book was written to Christians everywhere at any time following its original writing. Now let's look at verse 2 of Ephesians 1. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice that Paul says grace, that is God's unearned, unmerited favor, be to you and peace, not from Paul, but from God. This means that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, is mine because it comes from God. And the Bible tells me he wants me to have it. Now let's look at Ephesians 1 and 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who had blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. In the King James Version of the Bible, the word hath, H-A-T-H, is an old English word that means has, H-A-S, which designates in relationship time, uh, in relationship to time, I may say, that the action has already taken place, meaning past tense, Consequently, we must now, at this point in time, be blessed, not cursed, because it says that God has, H-A-S, blessed us. I heard someone say one time, I'm blessed, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. I don't deserve it, but I'm blessed. I cannot and just can't go along with that because it is not biblical. If we do not deserve to be blessed, why would God bless us? Since the Bible says God has blessed us, meaning all Christians, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, we must be deserving of the blessing, not necessarily because of anything we personally have done, but because God has deemed it his will and privilege to put his blessings upon us. Notice something else that this third verse makes very clear. We are not in the process of being blessed. God is not thinking about blessing us. But Paul says, who hath or has blessed us. That means we are already blessed. Someone might say, well, that's wonderful that, that God has blessed me with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, but I need some blessings down here on earth. I need a blessing like having my taxes paid or I need a blessing like having uh, a roof over my head or uh, having an automobile so that it can bring me to and from work. I need a blessing like being able to provide clothing and shoes and food for my, for my family. I need a blessing of having a body that is free from sickness and disease and pain. It is wonderful that I have blessings up there in heavenly places? But what about here on earth? And that is reasonable, saints. One of the mistakes of the teachings of the traditional church is that it has put off all the blessings of God to after a while, by and by, over there on the other side. 
but this is not what is meant in this verse. To understand what is being said here, we have to reason from the known to the unknown. In other words, we have to go from where we are to where we ought to be. We have to understand that we are living in a physical, material, three-dimensional world that can be contacted with our physical senses. However, at the center and core of our being, we are a spirit. You do not have a spirit, you are a spirit. You have a soul and you live inside a physical body, saints. Now with your spirit, you contact the realm of God who is in a spirit. With your body, through your five senses, you contact the physical and material universe around you. And with your soul, which contains your desires, your will, your emotions, and your intellect, you contact the emotional and intellectual realm. Man can operate in three different worlds at the same time. In John's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning at verse 5, it says that when Jesus and his disciples went to the city of Sychar in Samaria, Jesus stopped at Jacob's well. He sent his disciples into the city to get some food. While the disciples were gone, a woman of Sychar came to the well to draw water. When she got to the well, Jesus engaged in a conversation with her. He said to her, give me some of your water. She replied, how is it that you, being a Jew, speak to me, a woman of Samaria? And I want to digress just for a second. Y'all do know that people in Samaria are black. Okay, now let, let, let me proceed. Jesus used this opportunity to, to witness to the woman about the kingdom of God. He said to her, if you had asked me, I would have given you living water, speaking of the salvation he would bring to those who would receive him. And she said, the well is deep and you have nothing to get water with. How are you going to get the water? That's what she asking. How are you going to get the water? I can just visualize this. Now, in effect, Jesus answered her, if you drink of the water that I give, you will never thirst again. The two of them continued in conversation during which Jesus told her about her past. She being surprised at his knowledge concerning her since she had never seen him before stated, you must be a prophet since you know all this about me. Okay. Now with a different respect for Jesus, the woman said to him, the Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place to worship, but our forefathers tell us that here in the hills of Samaria is the place to worship. And in John chapter four, verses 23 and 24, this is what Jesus said to her. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the father in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now Genesis, Chapter 1 verse 26 tells us that when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were conferring about the creation of mankind, God said this, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, 
and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Now, if God made us in his image, after his likeness, then we too must be spirits. Since we are spirits, then we also must have the capacity to operate in the spirit world where God is. Now, Genesis 1 and 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That means that God, who is a spirit, created a physical world. Consequently, spiritual things have to be more real than physical things because it took a spiritual being to create material things. Are you following me? The reason Paul says, who had blessed us with all spiritual things is because everything material and physical was, first of all, spiritual. In fact, I believe the reason most people have a problem with operating in faith is because they have a problem understanding this concept. They are trying to understand it with their carnal mind and it's not going to work. It's not going to work. You can only understand the word of God through the spirit. Now, the majority of people are so conditioned to functioning in a physical world that they cannot, they, they, they just can't conceive of something existing apart from the physical. They just, they just can't do it. I talk to people every day and, and they are Christians, but they are still in their carnal mind. They never transitioned over into the spirit realm. Now, geography or geology and history tells us that the earth is round. It, it bulges a little at the equator, but basically it is a sphere. Now, in order for God to create this world and make it round instead of square, round instead of diamond-shaped or round instead of pear-shaped, uh, pear he would have to have, or he would have to have have a thought in his mind about what he wanted the earth to look like when he finished creating it. Then when he spoke the thought into existence, he literally projected what was in his mind into physical manifestation. Therefore, the round earth is a product of the mind of the almighty God. Everything that is physical was first of all spiritual. If we as believers can grasp this principle, we can then understand how to operate in faith because we will be able to understand how things can supposedly come from nothing and be changed into something. It is not that they are actually coming from nothing. It is that they are coming from a world that can't be seen with our physical eyes, even though it is a world more real than the world we really live in. Now, for example, on a, a, a summer's day, you may be driving down a highway. As you look down the road, you may begin to see what looks like a body of water on the road ahead of you. You keep on driving and driving, but you never get to the water. Any of you ever seen that? The reason you do not get to the, to, to the water is because the water is not there. 
What you have seen is an optical illusion. Mm-hmm. An illusion of the water. Now, perhaps you have looked out on the horizon on a, a summer's evening and seen a huge orange ball. It was the moon. It looked so close that you felt as though you could reach out and touch it. That might have been around maybe 7 p.m. Later on, around 11 p.m. or midnight, if you looked out again, you would have seen that the moon had moved further up into the sky. Then it would have been blue-white in color. And it looked a lot smaller than it did when you saw it on the horizon. Did the moon change its size? Absolutely not. When you saw it on the horizon, the atmosphere served to refract your vision. Therefore, when you look at something through fracted vision, you are not really seeing the object as it really is. The point I'm making is that some things are not as they seem to be. They look like one thing, but they are really something else. Everything in this world was first in the mind of God or in the mind of the creatures God made. Here is a case in point. I have a gray pinstripe suit. It's a business suit made by Kelvin Klein. This suit did not just fall out of the sky and materialize in my closet. It is made a, it's made a certain way and it has a certain texture and shape to it. Someone had a thought in his mind about making this suit. Then he or she went to a table and put these thoughts on paper, which became a pattern. The designer then put the pattern onto material, cut it out, sewed it together, and the, the finished product was a beautiful suit. Beautiful uh, gray pinstripe suit made by Kelvin Klein. All these things start out in the mind of someone, just as this world and the universe were first in the mind of God before they were manifested physically. Jesus is our reason for being blessed, okay? Because of our association with him, by having accepted and received him as our personal Lord and Savior, we get the benefit of that union with him, which is to be blessed. Now, God knows everything we need, what we will need, and what we will desire in our lifetime. He has already created all those things, believe it or not. He has them on deposit in the bank of heaven for our benefit. However, they are in a spiritual form. By our faith, we bring them out of the spiritual world into the physical world. They become houses, automobiles, clothes, and all the other things we need or, or may desire that are consistent with a godly life. All we have to do is to use our faith and call them into existence according to the word of God. Now, let's look at all spiritual blessings. You know, I like that word all. We are not blessed with only some things so that we have to struggle for the rest of, our, for the rest of them and, and beat our brains out on the, uh, the anvils of life. 
struggling, fighting, and, and fussing in our efforts to, to, to just get basic needs. No, we need to praise God. They are already provided for us. Yes, they start out in the spirit world, but we can bring them into physical manifestation by using our faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, saints. We have to remember that. I am blessed because the word says I'm blessed. I am blessed because the father said I am blessed. I am blessed and you are blessed because I am blessed. I expect the blessings to materialize. So I talk blessings. I think blessings. I speak blessings and the blessings come. Okay. Y'all already know we should have whatsoever we say. So we need to start speaking blessings over our lives. Now, when I talk about being blessed, some people have, have accused me of trying to make God do something. You can't make the God almighty do anything. You do not have to make him do anything because he will do all that he says he will do in his word. He is not like men who, who change their minds. That's not how God is. He can't lie. And he does not go back on his word like men do. If he says it, he will do it. However, we have to exercise our faith, which gives him the opportunity and the authority to move on our behalf. Do not think you are being humble when you say, well, I just don't deserve all these blessings. Uh uh. You are not being humble. You are being biblically and scripturally stupid. And that's just the bottom line. And I say that with love. If Jesus is your Lord, You deserve the blessings God wants to bestow on you as his child. Let's look at Ephesians 1 and 4. According as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, from that statement, you could get the idea that what is being said is that God has already predetermined who is going to be saved and who is going to be lost. So now we have to rightly divide these scriptures. If God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world or before the world was ever made, it does not make any difference what I do, what you do, because God has either chosen us or he has not chosen us. That is what you could get out of this verse if you are not careful. And if the verses are not rightly divided, the next verse adds, adds fuel to this concept. Ephesians one and five, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. When I first felt the call to the ministry, I started attending a ministerial class that was being conducted, uh, by a pastor of of a church. Now, during one of the classes, the pastor and I got into a discussion on the subject of predestination. His teaching was based on the dictionary meaning of the word predestination, and that was incorrect. Uh, The word predestination means predetermined or determined before the fact. The way this topic was taught left the impression that God chose certain people to be saved. 
and certain people to be lost no matter what anyone did or didn't do. And I knew this wasn't true. I knew it wasn't true because I can tell you one scripture right now that will tell you that this is not true. This concept is not true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him, that whosoever believeth on him. Do you know how many whosoever's they have out there? So this concept is not true. God did not choose certain people. Mm -mm. So that's why the scriptures have to be rightly divided. That's why they have to be taught. Okay. So this message today and uh, part two is very important about, about grace. So I'm getting ready to rightly divide and discuss with you and explain to you what this is talking about. Okay. Now, when that pastor said that to me, it was shattering to me. And I thought, isn't that something? Suppose I live all my life as a Christian and preach the gospel and do all the things that are supposedly right. And then I get to the end of life and find out that my name is not written into the Lamb's book of life. That would be devastating, wouldn't it? Now, there is a doctrine called the doctrine of predestination. Predestination in this context does mean predetermined. However, we need to understand what the Bible is saying so that we do not get confused and think God has already made up his mind regarding who would be saved and who would be lost. And I want y'all to keep in mind when somebody try to run that foolishness by you, the scripture, John three sixteen here, because <laughs> that knocks this, that concept out of the water. Just focus on John three sixteen. whosoever. Okay. Now that is not what the word predestination means in the Bible. In fact, the word is only used three times in the New Testament. Let us carefully examine and dissect this portion of scripture to see what is actually being said here. God has willed to make us his children. He has willed to adopt us into his family. A child who is up for adoption cannot demand that a certain man and woman adopt him and him or her. Okay. The child does not have anything to say about it. Not at all. It is the adopting parents who make the decision as to whether they will adopt a particular child or not. What Paul is telling us here is that it is God's good pleasure to adopt us into his family. That is what this word predestination means, according to the Bible. It does not have reference to the fact that God has predetermined that one person will be saved and another lost. Uh-uh, that's not God. God is, has no respect and is no respecter of persons, you hear? It is his will that all men be saved. That is his will. Now, the part that is, is predetermined is not our salvation. That is where you need to get this. God does not predestine anyone to be saved or lost because God has all knowledge. He knows who is going to receive Jesus and he knows who is going to reject him. But that does not make God responsible for anyone making that choice. The following illustra uh, illustration elaborates on this truth. Now, let's look at this. God created a man named Adam. 
and he put him in the Garden of Eden. God told Adam that he could eat of all the trees of the garden except the one in the middle. He said, if you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. God then left Adam in control of the garden. Did God know that Adam was going to mess up or did Adam's mess up catch God by surprise? God knew exactly Adam would sin. How did he know? Because he is omniscient. That's why. And he knows everything. Was it, was it God's fault that Adam ate from the tree? No, absolutely not. It was not his fault. He didn't make Adam eat from the tree. He didn't make Adam disobey him. Even though God knew Adam was going to do it, he didn't cause Adam to do it. That's the difference. Now, in his foreknowledge, God knows everyone who is going to accept Jesus and everyone who is going to reject him. But that does not make God responsible for anyone's decisions. Okay, that's the difference. For example, people who own the corner gas station know that automobiles in today's society either take regular, unleaded, or premium gas. So they usually have at least three pumps, one for each type of, of gasoline. Now these owners do not know exactly who is coming into their gas station to buy gas, but they know someone will because they possess the foreknowledge that automobiles use gasoline and people driving cars need to buy gas. They have the pumps ready and, and the tanks are full, but the fact that they have gas in the tanks does not make them responsible for any particular person coming into their stations to buy gas. By the same token, God knows who is and who is not going to accept Jesus as Savior. Even though he is not responsible for anyone doing or not doing so, based on that foreknowledge, he has determined or predestined that those who do accept Jesus are going to become his children by adoption. And that this is the only thing that has been predetermined. Okay, saints? In Romans 8, there are uh, two other verses that use the, the term predestination. And I believe it is very important to add this information to our library of Bible knowledge so that we can have a comprehensive understanding of what God is doing when it comes to this concept of predestination. Now let's look at Romans 8.29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The word foreknow is the key, saints. Foreknow means to know in advance. That word is the catalyst for understanding the word predestination. In other words, what God predestined is that when he gets finished with us, we are going to look like Jesus. He is not predestinating that we accept Jesus or reject him. We are going to look like Jesus. That is why we are called Christians. We are little Christ. We ought to look like Jesus. We ought to act like Jesus. We ought to think like Jesus. We ought to talk like Jesus. And we ought to live like Jesus. Now let's look at Romans 8 verse 30. 
Moreover, who uh, he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified, meaning declared righteous. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. We do not know who is going to accept or reject Jesus. We don't know. But God has designated a method or he has designed a, a method by which he can bring out into the open those who will accept, accept Christ. Okay? Are you following me? You can play back the tape as many times as you need to so that you can get this understanding. God knows what, what is in people's hearts. However, the folks who have accepted Christ need something to bring their acceptance out into the open so that they themselves will know they are the ones who have accepted him. How are they going to know who they are? Hmm? How are they going to know who they are? God is going to call them. And when he calls them, they will respond. Remember, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they don't follow strangers. Now, when they respond, they will know that they are the ones whom God has chosen and predetermined to look like Jesus because they themselves are now, are, are now aware of the fact that they have been called. God uses the preaching of the gospel to bring their calling to their attention. Now, to say it more simply, or, or, or let me simplify this, God knew ahead of time those of us who would respond to him. So he uses the method of the gospel to bring that response out of us. This is deep, people. I know it's deep. It's for people who got the spirit of God in them, which is the spirit of truth, which is our teacher, that will understand this. Those who has or have an ear to hear, let them hear. God knows who needs to hear this message. I know this is deep for a lot of y'all. And that is why I want us to look at verse 30 again. Okay, saints? We need to look at verse 30 one more time. Romans 8.30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. God has chosen us to be his sons. It was not because he chose us that, that made us sons. We weren't made sons because he chose us, okay? It was the fact that we first accepted his son. And as a result of that, he then chose us. But notice that he did it by virtue of the fact that he knew ahead of time who was going to accept his son Jesus. It was not him choosing us that made us chosen. It was because he, we accepted Jesus that he was then able to choose us. Are you following me? This is some good stuff, uh, people. This is what you call teaching and rightly dividing these scriptures. Now let's look at Ephesians 1 verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he had made us accepted in the beloved. Now, obviously, before that time, we were not accepted. In other words, God made the rules so that we could fit into them. We did not qualify on our own. 
but he so structured the game plan that the rules would allow us to be accepted by him because of his grace, his unearned, unmerited favor. Now let's look at Ephesians 1 and 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of his grace simply means that we did not have any demands we could make on God. He accepted us based on his unmerited favor. Okay? We have redemption. The, now, the scripture does not say that we are going to get it, but it says that we have it. It doesn't say that we are going to get it. That's important, people. It says that we have it, those who are in Christ. Man's redemption is in two stages. However, God includes both stages under one covering, the blood of Jesus. The reason our redemption is in two parts is because it deals with two facets of our nature. The first part is spiritual. And it, and it happens when we become born again, according to John 3.3. 3. This is the moment when you say, I recognize that I am a sinner. I recognize that I am without hope in the world. And Father, I recognize that you are the Lord of glory and that Jesus is your son. I know that you sent him to earth to redeem mankind, that he came in the flesh and died in the flesh, and that he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. I accept Jesus' sacrifice. And I accept him as my Lord and Savior. The moment you make that declaration, saints, you are transformed in your spirit. According to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you then become a new creature in Christ Jesus. That transformation takes care of the spirit part of your redemption. But we are still living in physical bodies in this physical world. And... It is God's plan and purpose that just as we receive a new spirit when we become born again, there is a day coming when we will receive a new body, a glorified body, a body that is made like the body of the Lord Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, a body that can operate in the earth and operate in the heavens, a body that can operate in the physical and in the spiritual realm. The kind of body all Christians are going to receive, saints. Right now, we are waiting for our bodies to be changed. At this point in time, my body is just as it was the day before I accepted Christ as my personal Savior. Unfortunately, you know, it is still subject to pain. It is still subject to sickness and disease. It is still subject to aging and getting out of shape. But thank God, I am going to get a new body, and so are you. Now, that's if you are born again. Now, when that takes place, the second part of our redemption will, will have been completed. Let's look at Ephesians 1, uh, 8 and 9. Wherein he had abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he had purposed in himself. This is a strange statement, saints, and yet it is filled with 
so much importance. It does not say that he is in the process of making it known. It does not say he will make it known. It's, it, it says, having made known unto us. How did God do that? He made known this mystery to us by his word, which means by, by his spirit. The word mystery implies something that is hidden or unknown. In other words, a mystery is not something you can look at and grasp readily or easily. The word mystery, however, does not apply to the children of the kingdom. Rather, it applies to those outside of the family of God. Those outside of Christ cannot know what the Bible means. And I had to address this on social media. Uh, I tell you, God forgive me. But God gave me the words to uh, share because they had uh, a person who was a non-Christian trying to um, address Christians on how and when they should forgive someone. And somebody who is outside of the kingdom cannot understand the mysteries of God. Only Christians can do that. So you can't speak on behalf of Christ and you can't speak on behalf of Christians if you are not a Christian, if you, especially if you are not born again, those outside of Christ cannot know what the Bible means. It is a coded language. It, it's a coded language to them people. They, and it's a coded language to some Christians who, <laughs> I'm telling you, who are not born again, but they are claiming Christ, but they're really not born again. They can read the various translations and they can, um, understand the words on the page but grammatically they can understand the words on the page but they do not know what message is being conveyed we can gather more information regarding this word mystery in the second chapter of first corinthians beginning at verse seven we're going to read verses seven through ten but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I had not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the, the heart of man the things which God had prepared for them that love him. But God had revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. My Lord, my Lord. With these supported verses in mind, let us look at Ephesians 1 and 9 one more time. Having made known unto us the, the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he had purposed in himself God makes known the mystery to us by his spirit saints that is why it is so necessary to operate in the fullness of the Holy Spirit the devil tries to keep the baptism with the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit out of the church and shame on you Christians for fighting God and not receiving his word, but following Satan, who's going to lead you into the pits of hell. Shame on you. 
Because the devil knows when you get into the power of God, you get into the solution of the mysteries. If you are not able to function and operate in the spirit of God, you are not going to know the mystery of the word. There are people who read the Bible, but remain in the dark. That's right. That's where you get all these different religions from. They are reading the Bible and because they really don't understand the mystery, it hasn't been given to them because they're not born again. And they're creating all these different uh, denominations and creating all these different religions because they misunderstood something. That's, that's just so sad to me. It hurts my heart to know this. They go around, you know, quoting scriptures, but they have no idea how these scriptures relate to their lives. No idea whatsoever. But thank God for the spirit of God who helps us walk in the knowledge of the mysteries so that we can know the plain or the, or, or the plan and, and the purpose of our heavenly father. Let's look at Ephesians 1 and 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one, that is talking about the body of Christ, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Presently, some Christians are living on earth and some who have, excuse me, and, and some who have already died are in heaven. At the moment they breathe their last breath, their spirits and souls, like caged birds, took wings, as it were, and ascended to the lofty pinnacles of glory and sailed into the very presence of God. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John had a, a vision of heaven while he was on the island of Patmos. He said, I saw under the altars the souls of them. He saw the spirits and the souls of them who had died. The spirit and the soul uh, go hand in hand, uh, like wetness goes with water. And I mentioned that in a, a previous message. We sometimes dissect them in, in order to teach on them, but the spirit and the soul go together. Physical death is the, is the, the termination of physical life. The bodies of the dead, Christians who are in the grave are the ones referred to when he, he talk about the resurrection of the dead. There is coming a time when Jesus Christ will come back to, to this earth to gather together those that are his. When he comes, he is going to bring with him the souls and the spirits of those Christians who have departed from this earth. Yes, saints, I know this is deep. This is, and I know you're not being taught this in some of these churches, but some of these churches are good teaching ministries. And I thank God for my teaching ministry. I thank him for the platform, but I'm using, he is using me to share his message. And, and this is teaching that you need to know. Teachings that you need to be informed of. Now, um, I want to say this one more time so that you can grasp this. He is going to bring with him the souls and the spirits of those Christians who have departed from this earth. Now, a great host a mighty host will be sent out of heaven like a great cloud and the trumpet of God shall sound. You talk about a great day. That is going to be the day, saints. At the sound of the trumpet, the bodies of the dead in Christ shall rise first. They shall come up out of the ground, 
in their reconstituted bodies. Scientists tell us that there is something called the indestructibility of matter. They say that matter does not really cease to exist. It may change uh, from a solid to a, a, a gaseous state, but whatever was a part of this earth is still out there somewhere in the universe moving around in another form. And the heavenly computers are programmed to keep track of every molecule and every cell. They know exactly where every molecule and cell is. Even if someone's body it has been blown up, I, I hate to use that, I know it sounds gross, but it's an illustration. Even if somebody's body is, is blown up into million, uh, a million pieces, God knows where every piece is. When the trumpet sounds, every one of those microscopic pieces will be drawn together by the power of God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing, saints? If Jesus were to come today, we Christians who are still alive would not have to die. We would be translated in a moment of time. Then all that Paul talked about in verse 10 will come together. Let's look at Ephesians 1 and 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. An inheritance, an inheritance saints, means someone has left you something after their death. Mm-hmm. Christians are walking through life like paupers and, and beggars. We are not beggars. We are the family of God and we have an inheritance. Ephesians 1 and 12 says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. This means that the heavenly father wants to receive praise and glory out of our lives. God wants to be proud of his children, just as any earthly parent would. He wants to be made happy by the achievements of his children, just as earthly parents do. Now let's look at Ephesians 1.13. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, after all that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now, there is a, a transaction in the context of Christianity where a born-again man or a born-again woman comes in contact with Jesus Christ as the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. This particular transaction is for divine supernatural endowment of power. And one must already be a Christian in order to qualify for this special gift of the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. There is also another transaction that is called being born again or the new birth. Being born again, of course, is the first transaction and then being filled with the Holy Spirit is secondary to it. Now, the 13th verse of Ephesians, one which talks about being sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise is not talking about being filled with the Spirit. It is talking about being born again. 
And it is, it, it's necessary to understand this important distinction, saints. It is obvious that this is what is being talked about because it says that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed. It did not say you were filled with. with. It didn't say that. It says you were sealed. Now, there are various ways to seal something. You can take a jar and, and put a lid or a cover or a cap on it and screw the cap down until it, it is tight enough to so that no substance can escape. Then there is a kind of seal that involves a, a metal embosure uh, placing an embossed impression on a document. When a document has such an, an embossed seal on it, it is considered to be a legal document and it will stand up in any court in the land. I believe these are the two basic ways we use to indicate the word sealed. Even though there are other ways of sealing uh, uh, these things as well, I think that God is talking about that type of seal, uh, an impression. Now, what does the Bible mean when it says that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit? I do not believe God puts a lid on us and screws it down so that we cannot escape. No, I don't, I don't believe that. I believe the kind of sealing the Bible is talking about is like the legal embossing seal, which permanently stamps us with the seal of God so that everyone in the universe knows that we belong to him. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, saints. Um, when this happens, we have his seal with his name, the name of Jesus. Oh yes, praise God. And we are sealed with that name. It is, however, the Holy Spirit who does the sealing. That is why it says we are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. When Jesus was risen from the dead, he appeared to his disciples for approximately 40 days, showing them infallible proofs that it was in fact he who had risen from the dead. He told them things concerning the kingdom of God and he commissioned them to go to the four corners of the earth to continue the work he had begun. He told them not to leave Jerusalem until they had received the promise of the father. In Acts 1.8 he said, but ye shall receive power, meaning divine ability, after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me. That was the promise of the Holy Spirit, saints. The Holy Spirit's purpose for coming is twofold. First of all, it is to be, it, it, it is to recreate those who accept Jesus as Savior and Lord and to seal them as God's own children and second, to fill us with his power. It is the same Holy Spirit, but he is functioning in two separate capacities. Okay? In the story concerning the man Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, Jesus told him about his need to be born again. Nicodemus thought that Jesus was talking about physical birth. And he asked Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Now, some may think he was being sarcastic. No, he wasn't. He didn't, know, he didn't get it. 
he didn't understand it. Now, in the sixth verse of that uh, third chapter of John, Jesus said this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's in John 3, 6. Notice that the first word spirit is capitalized as it ought to be because it is referring to the Holy Spirit. The second word spirit is in the lower case and that is as it should be because it, it, it is it referring to the spirit of man. So the new birth is the rebirth of the human spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that makes it work. He is the one who causes this transaction to take place. By an act of his will, a person says yes to the claims of Christ. And I believe at that moment in time, that person is sealed with the seal of God and he becomes God's own child. Oh, praise God for that. Thank you, God the Father, for being my father, for allowing me to be adopted into your family. Praise God. Some of God's children do not know they have been sealed because they have not been taught who they are in Christ. But Satan and every demon in hell and every angel in heaven know who the children of God are. Once we find out who we are and begin to live up to our privileges, when the devil sees us coming, he will start running like an, a dog the other way. He knows we have authority over him. Because we are sealed in the name of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Now in the 8th chapter of Romans, we see something else about being sealed by the Holy Spirit that helps to clarify some misunderstandings about being filled with the Spirit. Romans 8 and 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The uh, words, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, is not in the Greek. Uh, translators put that in there for some reason but since it was uh, it's in this verse I decided to say that and share that with you guys but you also need to know it's not in the original Greek okay in the original Greek it only says there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus okay now the word condemnation here means judgment what this verse is saying is that there is no more judgment concerning whether you are saved or lost, whether you are God's child or not, whether you are spiritually alive or spiritually dead. Once you accept Christ Jesus as your personal savior, you pass out of judgment. That is what that scripture is talking about. Um, you may not realize it, but when you come into the world, you come into the world um, with a cloud of judgment on you already. The wrath of God is on you from your mother's womb. Yes, it is, saints. The wrath of God, because you are born in sin, the wrath of God is not going to come on you at the end of life. It is on the unbeliever now. But the moment you accept Christ, you come out from under the wrath of God. You come out from under the condemnation and the judgment. The only judgment Christians will have to face is the judgment seat of Christ. Its purpose will be to see whether the works you have performed in the name of Jesus will stand up under the test of fire. If they do, then you will get a reward for your works. But this has nothing to do with your salvation. 
Okay, the judgment seat of Christ, going before the judgment seat of Christ, has nothing to do with your salvation. Uh, what people need to be concerned about is the great white throne judgment. Woo! My Lord. I'll have another teaching on that, but that's the judgment seat you don't want to go before. You know, anybody in their right mind want to come before the judgment seat of Christ. That's just dealing with your rewards. Now, let us examine other scriptures concerning the wrath of God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 30 through 36, John the Baptist is speaking. In reference to Christ, he says this, He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. And no man receiveth his testimony. He that had received his testimony had set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. That's John 3, verses 30 through 36. Notice that this passage does not say, He that believeth not. The wrath of God shall abide on him, indicating a future tense transaction. It says, the wrath of God abideth, which implies that it was already there. And because of the rejection of the son, Jesus, it is going to stay there. Let us continue with our study concerning the wrath of God by looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for the sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally or fleshly minded in death is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can be so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God but ye are not in the flesh but in the spirit if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you now if any man have not the spirit of Christ he is none of his that's Romans chapter 8 verse 1 through 9 now this is where some people get confused. They read that verse and say, oh, see, everybody is filled with spirit. No, that is not what this verse is saying at all. You did not find any words that said filled with the spirit. In that verse, it doesn't exist, saints. There is nothing in it 
that says anything about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. It does not say anything about being baptized with the Spirit. It simply says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are filled with the Spirit of God. This is talking about the Spirit of Christ. That means that the Holy Spirit's work at this point is to be is is to represent Jesus Christ. The Bible says Christ in you the hope of glory, Colossians 1:27. This is not talking about Jesus being in you physically. Jesus is geographically and physically seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is not inside of me physically, but he is inside of me by his representative, the spirit of God. Or in this reference, Romans 8, 9, he is called the spirit of Christ. Because in this part of salvation transaction, he is acting on behalf of Jesus. He is making Christ in, in us the hope of glory. Every born again person has the spirit of Christ in him. If you are born again, just as the Bible says, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. This means if you do not have the spirit of Christ, you have not been born again. That's what that means, saints. And you need to hear this because I know they have some Christians that think they are, are saved and think they are born again, but they're not. And you won't know until you hear these these scriptures speak on it. So this is why I, I teach on faith and grace and salvation because we have a lot of people out there going to church out of obligation because they were born and raised uh, in that family church and they have no idea whether or not that church is teaching the truth. You won't know the truth unless you hear someone teach the truth and then you compare it to what you have learned in the past. So this is why I chose to share this very important message because we got to get some lost souls saved. That's what we have to do. But every born again person does have the spirit of Christ, but that is not being filled with the spirit saints. There's a difference. Being born of the spirit is one thing and being filled with the spirit is, is something entirely different. Now I want to stop here and let's go ahead on and move into entering into his presence and then my closing remarks. Entering into his presence. Be aware of seeing yourself through other people's eyes. There are several dangers to this practice. First of all, it is nearly impossible to discern what others actually think of you. Moreover, their views of you are variable, subject to each viewer's spiritual, emotional, and physical condition. The major problem with letting others define you is that it borders on idolatry. Your concern to please others dampers your desire to please God, your creator. It is much more real to see yourself through his eyes his gaze upon you is steady and sure, untainted by sin. Through the eyes of God, you can see yourself as one who is deeply, eternally loved. Rest in his loving gaze and you will receive deep peace. Respond to his loving presence. 
by worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And I want to share three scriptures with you that I want you to meditate on today. All three are from the New International Version, NIV. The first scripture, Hebrews 11 and 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seeks him. Scripture number two is Romans chapter five, verse five. And hope does not dis disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Amen. And scripture number three is from John chapter four, verses 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So enjoy life, laugh, love, forgive, and treat everyone with compassion, dignity, and respect. See you next time. All right, saints. I hope you enjoyed part one of walking and standing in God's grace. If you have any questions or comments about this message or any past interludes, please send your comments, questions, or prayer requests to talkingbibletruth.cd at gmail.com. If you want to support this podcast financially, please go to my Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, and Radio Public home pages and contribute an amount of your choice. Now until next time, saints, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We walk by faith, not by sight. I am your host, Dr. Kamala D, rightly dividing the word of truth in peace and love. See you next time.